0: You're listening to audio from Grace Family Church. If you'd like to explore more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at gracepsl.org. Let's open our Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 1. I'll warn you, though, it's going to be a while before we get there because we're going to do a little uh, review in the introduction today. So, But that's eventually where we're going to be landing Matthew chapter 1. Um, for the last couple Sundays, we have been taking a look at something we celebrate every Christmas season, and that is the incarnation of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And we learned in previous lessons that that word incarnation is a, from a Latin word that means to enflesh. And with respect to Christianity, it means the infleshing of God. It is arguably the greatest and most unique miracle in all of Scripture. God entered the human race as a human being. The Creator became the created. The Almighty became a man. In a nutshell, the Incarnation means that eternal God added humanity to His always existing deity. He didn't subtract deity. He added to His deity humanity. And that means that in the person of Jesus Christ, you have both God and man. Both undiminished deity and true humanity both the nature of god and the nature of man not half god half man but all god and all man not god indwelling man but god united with man two distinct natures in one person and because of that jesus christ is unique from every other being in the universe he is the god man he is unique from us and that he's also god But He's unique from the Spirit and the Father in that He is also man. There is no one like Him. He is the center of everything. He is the foundation of Christianity. And that foundation begins with the incarnation. As God, He is co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. As God, Jesus created all things and sustains all things and upholds all things by the Word of His power, Hebrews 1 says. As God, He forgives sin. As God, He gives eternal life. As God, He receives worship and answers our prayers. As God, He grants mercy and dispenses justice. But at a certain point in history, the eternal Son of God added humanity to His deity through the supernatural conception brought about by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin named Mary. And we learn from Philippians 2 that He took on human nature we learned last week from John chapter 1 that he the word was made flesh and made his dwelling among us and then scripture tells us nine months after the incarnation after this supernatural conception he was born and he was given the name of Jesus in his human nature as a child he learned to walk and talk as an adolescent he grew in wisdom and strength and physical stature. As an adult, he, he looked ordinary. Isaiah 53 prophesied this. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon Him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to Him. That means no halo, no glow, no, no visible glory, nothing special outside of that one moment on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John when Jesus revealed His glory momentarily. You remember what Peter said there at that very moment? Let's build a temple right here. This is the spot, right? Outside of that though, nothing that we should be uh, attracted to in Him. In His fully human body, He became hungry at mealtime. Thirsty when He traveled and tired at the end of the day. In His fully human soul, He experienced happiness and joy. He faced loneliness. He faced uh, abandonment. He faced rejection. When he was grieved he wept he faced trials and was even tempted to sin and, and yet even though so completely human colossians 2 9 in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form and that sometimes is difficult to see when you're when you're reading through the scriptures or even while he was on earth because while he was here he limited the function and the display of His divine nature so that it did not override the limitations of His human nature. And that means during His earthly ministry that the the lion's share of Jesus' miracles were not done through the power of His divine nature, but rather through the, the power of the Holy Spirit anointing His human nature. And on limited occasions, when He acted or spoke from His divine nature, it was because for that very moment, the Father willed it in order to fulfill His plan. Jesus said, I never do anything unless I see My Father doing it. And so He walked in obedience, anointed by the Holy Spirit, to the will of the Father. And sometimes that will was for Him to either speak from or display His divine nature from His human nature. A good example of that is over in Matthew chapter 8 where after a day of healing the sick in Capernaum, Jesus was just exhausted and the crowds were huge and they needed to get away. Jesus needed to get away. <laughs> Did you ever say that? I just need to get away, right? And so they hopped in this boat and uh, started to make their way to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And in route, you know the story, a furious storm arose. It was so bad the waves were sweeping over the bow of the boat. It was so bad that seven of the twelve disciples who were commercial fishermen were fearing for their lives. Now, if you get a commercial fisherman freaking out, you know it's a bad storm. This was probably a storm beyond any other storm that, you know, that they had ever seen. And while the storm was going on, what's Jesus doing? In the bow of the boat, we presume, He was what? He was sleeping. With the, why? It didn't matter what was going on. He was so physically exhausted from giving out from healing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people all day long if you've ever been on a mission trip and you've and and you just spent the day out witnessing when you come back you're exhausted you know why because you've been giving spiritually. Now, multiply that by infinity <laughs> or a lot, and that's what Jesus experienced. He was giving out, giving out, giving out. So here He is. He's asleep in the boat. And the, and the disciples are almost tempted to think He doesn't care. They wake Him up. And from His divine nature, because the Father willed it, He rebuked the storm and instantly a sea of glass. So you got a storm that was so bad, commercial fishermen were freaking out. Jesus says, still, and it's a sea of glass. And what this event on the sea reveals is really the two natures of Jesus, right? Within the weakness of Jesus' human nature, he was asleep in the boat. But within that dwelled the omnipotence of his divine nature that shut the storm down in a second with a a mere word so dramatic the disciples who that day had witnessed jesus healing every kind of sickness and disease they had seen so much supernatural but this was so stunning they were startled and they asked among themselves what kind of man is this well i'll tell you he's the god man (laughs) that's who he is even the winds and the waves obey him jesus acted from His divine nature in that very moment, perhaps for the disciples to realize this was no normal rabbi that they were following. I don't know. I can only surmise that. But it was the Father's will. And that's exactly what Satan tempted Him with in the wilderness. To use His divine nature apart from the Father's will. Near the end of Jesus' 40-day fast in the wilderness, Satan tempted Him to do what? To turn stone into bread. Now for it to be a temptation, legit temptation, it had to be possible, right? So it, could have, it was possible, but no human being can turn stone into bread. And therefore, Satan was tempting Jesus to use his divine nature, create bread, in violation of the Father's will in order to satisfy the needs of his human nature, hunger. The Father's will was, by implication in the story, to provide food for the humanity of Jesus at the end of the fast through the the angels. What Satan was doing is attempting Jesus to prematurely get food outside the Father's will by using His divine nature. It was unique. You can see now how these temptations were very unique. Nobody's been tempted like this and nobody ever will. Why? Because Jesus is the unique person in the universe. He refused the temptation, of course, and and said man does not live by bread alone. Now, we could go on here with these kind of things all the way through the Gospels. We could see them. Why, though, are we kind of digging so deep on this? Why Why are we bearing down on this? Why are we digging into God's Word on this? Why do we need to understand it? Well, because God gave this to us in His Word. He intends for us to understand all of it. It may take a lifetime or an eternity, but He's given it to us. It is His Word to us. Not just to pastors or theologians, but to every Christian that calls on His name. His Word is His letter to us. His, his revelation to us. And so, we have this in the Word because the Father wants us, wants us to understand that. Why does He want us to understand it? Well, lots of reasons, but two this morning, first of all, Because the incarnation is the foundation of our faith. That's number one. And then number two, because the incarnation is a very powerful motivation for living out our faith. Motivation. So it's a foundation and it's a motivation. First of all, foundation of our faith. And when I say foundation, uh, I mean this. I mean that the incarnation is the foundation of all that Jesus has done for us in his life, death, death resurrection and ascension everything that he has accomplished for us in his life his death on the cross his resurrection three days later and his ascension into heaven is resting upon or founded upon the incarnation no incarnation no salvation the incarnation must happen. God must come into the human race. God must become a man in order for his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to accomplish all that it has. Now there is no salvation without believing that Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. All the way through the New Testament, one of the one of the big heresies, you see this over in 1 John was people actually were teaching that Jesus really didn't come in the flesh as a human being. He kind of did. John goes as far as saying if you don't believe Jesus came into the flesh you're not born again you're not a child of God that's how important it is that's how important it is within the plan of God there is no salvation without believing that Jesus is God manifest in the flesh and Jesus many times throughout His ministry brought people to that fork in the road many times And probably um, the most profound one or ones are found in john's gospel later on from where we studied last week in john chapter one in john chapter eight throughout john's gospel jesus uses this phrase i am over 40 times 24 of them are emphatic instead of jesus saying i am the text literally literally reads i i am It's emphatic. It's like we would put an exclamation point behind it in the English language. Now, seven of those 24 emphatic I am's um, are completed. Seven of those 24 statements are completed with a metaphor that describes Jesus' person. We're really more aware of these where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the completed sentence bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life i am the way and the truth and the life i am the true vine and most of these images that jesus uses to describe himself are, are images that in the old testament refer to god they were used to describe god for example psalm 27:1, the lord is my light and my salvation jesus in the new testament i am the light what was he saying indirectly he was saying I'm God. But he also uses this emphatic I am to directly state that he is God. Eight of those 24 emphatic I am statements have no predicate. What do I mean by that? It doesn't say I am the light of the world. It just says what? I am. There's nothing else after that. Just I am. End of sentence. That's confusing in the English language. And so translators often... Uh, uh, add he there. Even though it's not found in the original, it's not found in any of the texts. in order to make it readable, understandable, he must be saying I am he. But he doesn't say I am he. He simply says I am. And that is a bit confusing in the English language unless of course you are familiar with God's disclosure of his name to Moses in the Old Testament on Mount Sinai. Moses was instructed by God excuse me not on Mount Sinai but at the burning bush Moses was instructed by God to go free the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt and so Moses has a little bit of a problem with that and he has several rebuttals and one of those rebuttals is well who shall I say has sent me I mean what authority am I going down there with I'm just a shepherd from the middle of the desert I'm going to walk down there and say let them go what makes you think they're going to listen to me or believe in me? Who shall I say has sent me? And so, and so God answers Moses by, by giving him three names to say, here's who sent me. Three. And they're all basically synonymous. God says, verse 14 to Moses, here's what you say, I am who I am. That is what you're to say to the Israelites. The I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Now notice that before you take it off the screen. Notice that Lord. In your Bible, my Bible, that's in all caps. In the Old Testament, Lord is either in capital L, small case, O-R-D, or capital L, uppercase, O-R-D. Whenever you see the uppercase, it means this, that that is the name of God, Yahweh. That designates, this is the name of God. And so what Moses is saying here, he says, I am who I am, number one. That's what he says. Then he says the shorter version, I am. And then he says, the Lord. And again, the Lord comes from those Hebrew consonants, Y-H-W-H, often pronounced Yahweh, again indicated in Scripture by the uppercase O-R-D. It means self-existent one. It means the one who brought everything else into existence. It means the one upon whom everything else is dependent now for the jews i am and yahweh were equivalents so the name of god noun form yahweh amplified by the verb form of god's name i am so yahweh equals i am so when jesus referred to himself as i am without the predicate he was saying he wasn't saying i am the light of the world i am the bread of life he was saying i am the one who spoke to moses out of the burning bush He was emphatically saying, I, I am Yahweh. So when Jesus says that, of course, he's going to get a reaction, isn't he? And probably one of the most well known places, again, here is right here in John chapter 8, where he has this showdown with the religious leaders of the day who are basically challenging him about his true identity. We're going to jump right into it because we don't have time to to, to make a bigger explanation. But he says in verse 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him, and you, sarcastically, have seen Abraham? (laughs) I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Here he comes with the boom. Before Abraham was born, I am. Now notice, they knew what he meant. Why? At this they picked up stones to stone him But Jesus hid Himself slipping away from the temple grounds. Why do they want to kill Him? Well, because He referred to Himself as I Am. When Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I Am, He was not just saying He existed before Abraham. That would be bad enough. And if so, He would have said, before Abraham was born, I was. But He doesn't say, before Abraham was born, I was. He says, before Abraham was born, what? I Am. Why? Because He was using the title of God. Because He was God. He is the I Am. It was the most revered title of God in the Old Testament. So much so that the Jews wouldn't even speak it, and yet here He is speaking it. So Jesus emphatically stated to these religious leaders, I am the God of your forefathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I am Yahweh, the one who called Abraham from His homeland into the promised land. The one who promised a son to him and gave it to him in his old age. I am Yahweh. And this infuriated them. And what was the reason under that? Well, here it is. Because Yahweh, and they were right about this. They just didn't understand the whole thing. Yahweh was so great. So holy. So set apart from His creation. So above and beyond and transcendent over His creation. That the thought of Him stooping down so low as to enter His creation as a man was absolutely unthinkable. It was blasphemous. He was much too glorious for that. But that is exactly what God did in the incarnation. And that's the miracle of Christmas. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail incarnate! deity pleased with us in flesh to dwell Jesus our Emmanuel Jesus our Emmanuel which means God with us not beside us in that sense but God with us as one of us Now, Probably the most extraordinary of these are found in the same chapter, four verses earlier. Jesus said this. If you do not believe that I am He, you will indeed die in your sins. Again, no He in the original text. And if you look at more literal translations of the Bible, you'll see that He is italicized. Just added to make sense. But it actually keeps us from understanding what he He was saying. He says, if you do not believe that I am the I am, that I am God, you will die in your sins. Why did Jesus say if we don't believe He's God that will die in our sins? Or to put it another way, why must we believe that Jesus is God to be forgiven our sins? Well, Romans 6 says that all humanity is enslaved to sin. Slaves to sin. Guilty before God, deserving of of divine judgment, and that judgment's death. The wages of sin is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. Separation from God. Our only hope is for a substitute to die in our place. The penalty's death. We need somebody to die in our place, but nobody in all humanity is qualified. Why? Because every human being is what? A slave to sin. A slave can't free a slave. It takes a free man to do that, but there is no free man. Romans 3, nine. all are under the authority of sin, the power of sin. The only free being, of course, in the universe and beyond is God. But eternal God can't die. You can't put nails through God. You can't nail God to a cross. Dying is for created things. So because God so loved you, He became a man in the Incarnation in order to make it possible for nails to be driven through His hands so that you would be forgiven your sin. To take your place on the cross. To bear the judgment that your and my sin deserved. He took it as a substitute. Scripture says if you believe that, you will be forgiven. You will be saved. You will be a child of God. That's the way you become a Christian. sinless God in the flesh was the only one qualified to become our substitute and bear our penalty and redeem us from sin and change our hearts and adopt us into His family and through His perfectly lived life, His perfect life of obedience through His perfect death His death for our sins not only have we been forgiven all of our sins forever but we've been given Christ's very own righteousness, because everything He earned through His perfect life, we get. Everything we get in Him, in Christ, even His inheritance. For we Scripture says, Scripture says in Romans, for we are heirs together with Christ everything that He inherited because of His perfect life, because of His sacrifice, because of everything He's done, we too will get in Him. We are co-heirs with Him and heirs of God. And to all that we say, Lord, (laughs) we love You. The reason we love Jesus so much is because He infinitely stooped down to enter the human race to give us life and our only rational response we really why understand the incarnation more because the more you understand about Jesus the deeper your love for Jesus will be and the happier you will become and less dependent you will be on other things for happiness and joy and peace the answer is not trying harder the answer is believing the gospel more deeply. And the center of the gospel is Jesus. And our only rational response, really, for Him giving our, His life for us that way is for us to give our lives for Him, for His cause, for His glory to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And therefore, the the Incarnation is not only the the foundation of our faith, it is a, a very powerful motivation for living out our faith. Just as it was for those who first experienced, or who actually experienced the Incarnation firsthand, Mary and Joseph. Let's read the text. We finally get to it. Matthew 1. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. it's from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son and you're to give him the name of Jesus because He will save His people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call Him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Now, the incarnation motivates you to live out your faith basically in three stages. The first is when you come to faith in Jesus, when, you're, when it begins. The second is when you start growing in Jesus. And, and the third is when you start getting some pushback because of Jesus. So the first one is this the incarnation motivates faith to admit that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, Jesus. Now, if I'm a fairly righteous person who can earn my way to heaven, then the incarnation is unnecessary. We don't need it, right? But if I'm not a righteous person and a sinner in need of a Savior, then the the incarnation is absolutely necessary. There's no salvation without it. And this absolutely necessary incarnation, is where faith in Jesus begins. The angel said to Joseph that Jesus would what? Save his people from their sin. This is the whole program. To save people from sin, which implies, right, the people that Jesus came to save are people who, you can say it, sin. People who see themselves as And realize they need to be saved from their sins. Perfect. (laughs) To clarify that, at one point, Jesus says over in Luke 5, I've not come to call the righteous, but what? Sinners to repentance. Right? The healthy do not need a doctor. Only the sick do. Right. I've not come to... You know what He was saying? There are no righteous, by the way. What He was saying was this. I've not come to people who think they're righteous. I've come to people who know they're sinners and who need repentance. Now, save people from their sin. This is what the angel says to Joseph, and I suppose as he thought about that, you know, after this whole thing, this is all going through his head. He's just thinking about it over and over and over. And he gets together with Mary. She's also had an angelic visitation and learned some things. And they combined everything together and Joseph thinks about it, you know, some more. And then he comes to this, this conclusion. My son is really the son who has come to save me from my sin. What? faith that faith in it that 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 whole idea in itself is an act of faith not only for Joseph but for people today he's come to say me from my sin that's an act of faith because most human beings unless they are informed by scripture don't see the depth of their sinful condition before God We, we don't have the ability to see it we must be informed by by scripture I mean morally they may not be as bad as they could be but spiritually they are as bad off as they could be Ephesians says before we believe in Jesus we are dead in our sin we are under the sway of Satan unknowingly we think we're free but we are really bound and worse of all we are alienated from God because of our sin. The problem, of course, is that people generally think of sin in terms of armed robbery, armed robbery and adultery rather than the rebellious independence that essentially says, I'll run my own life and when I need you, I'll call you. I got it. Okay, I can handle it here. I'll let you know. When I, when I need you, Isaiah 53 speaks of this propensity in the shepherd-sheep metaphor. We like sheep have all gone astray. We as each one gone our own way. But the Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. What iniquity? The iniquity of going our own way. Of trying to live independent from God. Of not submitting our lives to God. I'm not centering our lives around the great shepherd. That's the iniquity that was laid on him. But our sinfulness is most clearly seen in the propensity to morally self-evaluate by comparing ourselves with somebody that's lower on the moral totem pole. Like we can always find somebody Who's lower? We look at them and we go, okay, I'm righteous then, right? It's a relative righteousness. We compare ourselves to other instead of what we should do is compare ourselves with God. And then what? Woe is me. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips and I live among an unclean people, Isaiah said. Peter in the boat says, get away from me, Jesus. When he was, became aware of His sin before Holy Son of God. That's why Paul says, all have fallen short. All have sinned. All have fallen short of God's glory. There is not one righteous. Romans 3.10 No, not one. Now here's the point. Here's the point. Let's sum it up. If Jesus didn't have to come into the world to save you in the Incarnation, you're still trying to save yourself. But... If Jesus had to come into the world through the Incarnation, and you believe that, you are being saved by God. Let me say that again. If Jesus didn't have to come into the world to save you, you're still trying to save yourself. But if it was absolutely necessary for Him to come in the world through the Incarnation to save you, and you believe that, you are in fact being saved by God. All right enough with that second way the incarnation motivates us to live out our faith is with the faith that lets Jesus completely manage our life Joseph son of David don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit she'll give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins now in Jewish culture the naming of a child was the prerogative of the father. He was to bestow the name upon the child. And for a, a male child that was to be done uh, on the 8th day at his circumcision. But in this case the naming of Jesus that prerogative to name Jesus was taken away from Joseph. He didn't get to name. The name was given to him, right? Because why? And that meant and I you know I'm sure you know it's easy to see that Jesus wasn't Joseph's son in the normal sense, in the biological sense, right? Even though Jesus submitted to the authority of Joseph and Mary, ultimately, ultimately, he was not under their management. They were under his management. And by refusing to let Joseph name Jesus, the angel was essentially saying, if Jesus is in your life, you're not the manager. He is. He's your manager. But it is not uncommon for people to believe in Jesus but try to retain the management of their own life. They say, you know, I'm interested in becoming a Christian, but not if it means I have to do this, or I have to do that, or give up this, or so so forth and so on, right? In other words, I want Christ, but I only want Him on my own terms. I will welcome the Christ child in my life, but only if I can name Him. Only if He becomes what I want Him to be to me. Believers do something similar to that. They subconsciously say, I'll follow you, I'll obey you if you do this or that for me. Do believers really do that? Come on. Of course they do. That's why when you get to the bottom of you know, the, what, what's caused a person to fall away from the Lord, they will eventually admit, usually in, in, in these cases, they'll say, you know, when it comes down to it, God didn't do what I wanted Him to do. Always. He didn't do what I thought he should have done. And that's a person who unknowingly said to themselves in the beginning, I will follow you if. Look, if there's an if, you're still the manager. You're still trying to name the baby. To be a genuine Christian, you have to do something that is viewed as completely crazy, completely countercultural. You have to give up self-management. Jesus said, if anyone would come after Me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Me. You have to give up your right to self-management to be a Christian. You have to say in your heart, not My will, but Thy will be done. That's incredibly counterculture. and requires radical faith because it takes faith to believe God when He says that picking up your cross and self-denial is the actual way to true happiness. Because that doesn't make sense. Self-denial and cross-carrying doesn't seem happy to me, right? But God says that's the true way to real joy, to real peace, to real wholeness. And that takes what? To believe that. That takes faith. That kind of submission requires it's faith. Because only when we give Jesus complete managerial rights over our life that we that we get from Him what we need the most. We need Him to name us. We need Him to tell us who we are. That we are chosen of God. That we are redeemed through his His blood. That we are the beloved children of God. We need Him to name us. He made us and He knows us. And He knows who He made us to be. And we will never know who we are and be truly happy until He is the Lord or manager over everything in our lives. That takes faith. So the Incarnation produces the kind of faith, number one, that admits you're a sinner in need of a Savior, number two, the kind of faith that allows Jesus to completely manage your life, and number three, and lastly, the kind of faith that follows Jesus in a world that scorns Him. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit now think, think a little, little intuitively about these these words what they meant to Joseph and Mary Mary's pregnant Joseph knows he's not the father if Joseph goes ahead and divorces her he disobeys God because God said through the angel take her home and marry her But if Joseph marries her, the baby is born before nine months, everybody in that little village will know that Mary and Joseph had sex before marriage or that Mary was unfaithful to Joseph and got pregnant through someone else other than Joseph. And in their day, their day, not ours, but in their day in a shame and honor-based culture, that would amount to basically being second-class citizens in that little village for the rest of their lives. They would essentially be shunned. Now, the truth of the matter, of course, is somebody else did cause Mary to conceive, but it wasn't another man. It was who? The Holy Spirit. Now, can you imagine Joseph trying to explain that to his family? Right? Or Mary's dad? Can you see Mary's dad? Oh, yeah, Joseph. I see now she got pregnant through the Holy Spirit. That makes sense. Okay, all is well. Right? Mary's friends. Can you imagine Mary? It was the Holy Spirit. Poor Mary. She's so delusional. Joseph's friends. You know, he says, well, she actually got pregnant through the Holy Spirit. What would they have thought? <coughs> Poor Joseph. He's so gullible. He's always been gullible, this Joseph. <laughs> in spite of all the misunderstanding, spite and the loss of uh, of reputation, Complete loss of reputation. Joseph obeyed. That's faith. That's faith to take one for the Savior. He went ahead. He obeyed. Regardless of what it costs. Here's a lesson. For a faithful follower of Christ, obedience to God, inevitably, not, not always, unfortunately not most of the time, but some of the time inevitably brings a reproach or a scorn from man. All of us will experience the same reproach when we endeavor to genuinely, faithfully live out the beauty of the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in everyday life. When you tell people that that baby in the manger is eternal God, who created all things, supplies all things, sustains all things, that He is the only way to heaven and they will stand before Him one day accountable for their lives, they might think you're a little gullible too. When you tell people that a man that died 2,000 years ago has forgiven you all your sins, and that you regularly talk to him and he speaks back to you in your heart, they go, oh, I get it. He speaks to you. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That makes sense. Look, being a Christian means no matter how hard you try, you're never going to fit into the world. And Jesus, He told us that. John 15, He says, if you belong to the world, the world would love you as its own. As it is, you don't belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world and that is why the world hates you. But this kind of suffering, it's not a bad thing, really. It actually works out for our advantage in, in, in three ways, and I'll close with those. First of all, it frees you from managing your own reputation. I mean, once you lose your reputation, you're free. (laughs) I don't care what anybody thinks about me now, right? It's out. I mean, there's a real freedom in that. I mean, that's why so many people stop short of really, you know, vociferously sharing their faith. That's why I'm afraid of what somebody might think of me. But once you jump over that barrier, once you cross that barrier in faith, believing there's more joy on the other side, there's a great freedom that that comes into your life. It frees you from, from the bondage of having to maintain your reputation. Secondly, it produces camaraderie and solidarity with Jesus in His suffering. Jesus said this, Remember what I told you? A servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me... They're going to persecute you. You know what it feels like? You're right alongside Jesus. There's a camaraderie there. There's a solidarity with Jesus. Jesus suffered. My Lord suffered. He told me if He suffered, so will I because I'm His follower. But I take that as a badge of honor, not a disgrace. That camaraderie and that solidarity with Him means more to me than anything else. Paul says, I want to know Him in the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His Sufferings. That's exactly what that's talking about. Lastly, it'll one day be rewarded. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil because of me. Very important, right there. Not because of our failings or our flesh or our. Idiosyncrasies, that's being nice. But because of me, because you're united with me, because you believe my truth, because you're endeavoring to live out my truth. If someone says any kind of evil against you or persecutes you in any way because of me, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in this life. Great is your reward in heaven. That's not to say there's not benefits in this life. Certainly, freedom from reputation is one of those, right? But there are rewards awaiting faithful believers in heaven that will absolutely blow our minds. And we need to live for that day. We need to keep that day in mind. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your Son into the world to become a man to die on the cross for our sins, Lord Jesus. Thank You for willingly becoming a man so You could die on the cross for our sins. We count it as no small thing. You had to do that. The incarnation was necessary. It was the only way that we could be saved. The only way we could be forgiven the only way we could experience new life, the only way we could experience eternal life. And if you've not taken that step of faith that says, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, that Savior is Jesus Christ, and He will welcome you. He will welcome you into His arms this morning with forgiveness and love and compassion and mercy. We simply must believe. We must believe that He died on the cross for us personally, not just for the world as a whole, but for us. I believe. If you've never done that, I want to lead you in a confession of faith this morning to believe in Jesus Christ. Let's say this together I believe believe. in Jesus Christ. That He died on the cross for my sin. That He he rose from the dead dead to make me right with with God. God. I'm a child of God by faith in Jesus Christ. In His name.